Welcome to Jesse War Radio. Jesse War Radio is dedicated to peering behind the veil of esoteric iconology and symbolism and is available from jessiewar.com. Each week we interview authors, historians, thinkers and artists in an effort to discern the truth behind symbols, myths, icons and allegories. New episodes are posted every Friday. Members of Jesse War Radio gain access to the second hour of every show. Find out more about becoming a supporting member of Jesse War Radio by clicking on the subscribe link in the top navigation menu at jessiewar.com. Thank you for tuning in. Gary W. Tromph is Emeritus Professor in the History of Ideas in the Department of Studies in Religion at the University of Sydney, where he previously held a personal chair for 10 years. He was educated at the universities of Melbourne, Monash, Oxford, and the Australian National University, and has written over 15 books, which embody early Christianity, the religions of Melanesia, and the history of ideas, among a myriad other fields. Gary is known as the chaser of grand ideas of European history. In Melanesia, he went from village to village mapping traditions. Gary has a great fascination for diversity and an ability to see cultural phenomena in their infinite complexity. During hour one, Gary discusses millenarianist aspects of various world religions. And during hour two, he discusses the John Frum movement, what are conspiracy theories, and all about cargo cults. Hi, Gary. Thanks very much for coming on to the show. How are you today? Very nice. Uh, thanks, Jesse. A pleasure to be with you. Oh, thanks very much. Today, we're going to be talking about millenarianism, cargo cults, and the origin of religion in the second hour. First, would you mind giving us um, an overview of your background? Uh, you mean a little short biography of myself? Yes. Well, uh, I was born in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. Uh, grew up in the Dandenong Ranges outside of Melbourne, um, a place very sacred to the Australian Aboriginal people. And um, so after graduating in history at the University of Melbourne, um, I began a career which uh, developed into my professorship in the history of ideas. So I did a master's degree on the origins of the comparative study of religion. And that involves looking at people who had ideas about the origins of religion. Um, I went to Oxford to study uh, biblical and patristic studies. Um, I came back and went to the ANU, the Australian National University, to do a doctorate on the idea of historical recurrence in Western thought from uh, antiquity to the uh, Renaissance and Reformation. Um, and during that time, while I was doing the doctorate, I was able to land the first job in religious studies um, in the history of Australia, but it was kind of offshore in Papua New Guinea, uh, but at a time when Papua New Guinea was still part of Australia. In 1975, that country to the north of Australia became independent. And I was there through independence, and I started researching the religions of Melanesia and accumulated masses of material during the 1970s. And um, during that time, I began to be a visiting professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where I've been uh, three times. Uh, but I uh, went back to take uh, my first professorship in history at the University of Papua New Guinea in the 1980s, then uh, returned to the University of Sydney where I eventually became professor in the history of ideas, and now I'm emeritus in that field through the 90s and up until now. So... Um, Melanesian research really did not begin for me um, in earnest, I suppose, um, because we're going to talk about cargo cults from Melanesia um, until the early 1970s. But I was uh, fortunate enough to study 
Pacific prehistory or the um, archaeology of Oceania under a great man, John Mulvaney, when I was uh, young at the University of Melbourne. And he was the founder of uh, Australian archaeology as well. So I was prepared intellectually way back, but uh, during the 70s, um, I began to do heavy field work, um, both in traditional religions and uh, transitional movements. So you have more traditional religions, uh, <clears throat> well, per capita in the whole world concentrated in Melanesia. About a quarter of the known describable or discrete religions of the world are in this area between West Papua in Indonesia and going right across through Papua New Guinea to the Solomon Islands, New Caledonia, Vanuatu and Western Fiji, the black peoples of the Pacific. Um, greater concentration of languages than anywhere else on earth. It's kind of a minefield for eth ethnography, ethnology. So um, that really uh, <laughs> took up a, a lot of effort and a lot of time to understand that. When the missionaries came in, starting from, well, in certain parts of Melanesia in the middle of the 19th century, um, you had confusion as to what they were trying to say because uh, they, um, they were accompanied uh, by strange goods. They had um, knives and forks and <laughs> teapots and kettles. Melanesia was very strongly uh, <clears throat> Melanesia was very strongly missionized by the Christian missionaries because um, the European powers took over there. There were no other major religions present <clears throat> before Christianity, except on the fringes of um, West Papua, which is part of Indonesia. So what happened was that many of the mainstream Catholic and Protestant orders and denominations went to certain areas and began preaching the gospel. Um, and by the turn of the century, uh, in 1900, there were comities or agreements between the missions to concentrate amicably in different areas. So by now, Melanesia is a kind of 95% Christian area. Oh, is uh, it? And that, that includes all the islands as well? And that includes Papua New Guinea as well? Yes. Really? Yes, a massive religious change has taken place. But there were many confusions en route, and uh, some of these confusions still hang around. I mean, you can't, <clears throat> you can't say that Christianization is like just... Um, a simple replacement of one thing to another because uh, in any healthy transition in religious life, you have to carry your tradition with you. So many of the um, <coughs> feasts of hospitality have been kept and um, accepted within the Christian way as a... Um, good representation of human life. But all the negative things, like tribal warfare, they're being suppressed constantly, not only by the missionary teaching, but, uh, well, they were repressed by the colonial governments and now by the new national governments in many parts of Melanesia. So you can't carry on tribal fighting anymore except in very isolated pockets. Getting to uh, millenar millenarianism, did, were these groups millenarianist before the Christians converted them, or does Christianity have something to do with their millenarianism? Well, 
to the extent that um, some peoples thought there was going to be a great change in the future, some cultures were uh, millenarian. They expected um, something like the coming of the whites. Uh, for example, some peoples expected their ancestors to return from the place of the dead and bring great riches. Did they think that white people were their dead ancestor ghosts returning with riches? In, in many instances, yes. And can you give us a definition of millenarianism for people who don't know what that is? Well, millenarianism is a much wider phenomenon than cargo cults. Um, you remember how in the Bible there are two key books where you've got expectations of the final end of the known order of things. And, uh, you know, conservatives in uh, the United States, for example, are often quoting from them. The books of Daniel. Is that Revelations, Gary? Yeah, the books of Daniel in the Old Testament, so-called, or in the Hebrew Bible. And the, the, the book of Revelation, or the Christian Apocalypse, the last book of the New Testament. These are containing passages about the final times, the new heaven and the new earth. So when uh, you have people on their tippy toes getting ready for this final scenario because they think it's about to occur, you have what's called a millenarian movement. That's the idea of expecting the millennium or the thousand years reign of Christ, which is in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And so in sociology, the word millennium from the Greek chilias has been taken and used uh, for sociological purposes generally to refer to any movements that are on their tippy toes for the final scenario of our known order of things, of history, you know, of the existing nature of life, because in the Melanesian cases, they might, they might not have much of a history. They might just remember six generations back and have a few heroes, and so they don't have history like we do. Are, sorry, are, are suicide cults um, related to millenarianism? They can be, yes, but not always. There can be a crossover. So, um, you know, there can be um, like um, UFO cults expecting that if uh, you die at the right time, you will join uh, the salvific comet or... Um, passing planetary array and escape Earth and go somewhere else. And uh, that, that, can be, um, that can be called a millenarian movement as well. Um, but uh, this is only because, this is a mystery, of course, every death that occurs is like the end of the world anyway. It's what we call eschatology in um, biblical and Christian talk because as soon as you die, you go outside the known order of things and as soon as you have the end of the world, this same sort of thing applies. It's like the eternal, the timeless breaking into time. So uh, <clears throat> millenarianism, you can think about it and think about it in different ways. It's not just one monolithic set of ideas. Now, cargo cults, um, they are not always millenarian, but you can sense that the millenarian factor comes in if somebody says, yes, the missionaries have come, Jesus will return, but he'll return with the ancestors and they'll both bring with them the cargo. Now, the cargo... Uh, that's the European-style goods, tins, you know, plastics, 
all the sorts of things that the uh, <clears throat> local peoples could not understand. They couldn't work out where they came from. There were no factories in Indigenous Melanesia, so they supposed that these things came from outside some kind of spirit order. Um, they, they came from outside where there was some kind of spirit order. And so they, um, they might um, build wharves, put down airstrips like the missionary aviation airstrips and hope that Jesus will return with the ancestors bringing the cargo. I'd like to ask you, are there any religions that are not millenarian or do not have a millenarian element to them? Well, some indigenous religions don't think about the future. So they would um, just be concerned basically for the continual round of things. But among these many different ones in Melanesia, occasionally you'll find, um, say, the idea in the southern highlands, uh, among the the Huli people uh, in uh, in Papua, Papua New Guinea, the idea that everything will go down in the end into a sinkhole in the earth. Everything will have to end sometime, and they imagine it disappearing down a hole, like the rivers seem to disappear down waterfalls. Um, but this is pretty rare. So when the Christians came, they opened up the possibility of thinking about the ultimate future, and it became a kind of novelty of thought. And as a result, the cargo element becomes the crucial novelty, but not the only one. Like, for example, another Highland case, I work in, um, um, in the Wagi Valley in the New Guinea Highlands, where the earliest known garden in the world has been excavated. And during the recent history, when the missionaries came in and they talked about Noah's Ark, um, one man um, decided that it was important for um, uh, a group of people around him uh, to, be, uh, to be saved. So he, he created a barrier and uh, he drew um, a number of people inside the palisade and said, okay, well, you're, you're saved. You'll be all right because a great flood is coming. We're okay. And so imagine this to be a final flood. And then he said, well, now we've got to try and encourage other people to come in as well. There's no talk about goods, European-style goods or cargo just the use of a biblical idea that a catastrophe was coming. So it's not easy to just generalize about every millenarian movement in Melanesia as to do with cargo. That's, that's one of the big arguments I've used. It's, it's false to generalize like that. Right, because cargo cults are obviously the most sensational phenomenon. Yeah. So they're, and they're the most interesting one probably too. So. What, well, what, course, how, old, that, how old is that garden that you mentioned? Oh, 10,000 B, BC, BCE. And what did they find there? They found, like, um, how did they know it was a garden? They found seeds and then, like, rocks delineating it? Uh, basically, uh, drainage systems. Um, a man who spent most of his life in uh, Wellingtons or Gumboots, a New Zealand man, Jack Golson, a friend of mine, just uh, went up for many seasons and excavated the drainage systems and found certain things there like images of old spirit beings, uh, huge long wooden spades that were not known to peoples later on, uh, that sort of thing. So uh, that comes into my book on, uh, In Search of Origins on the Origin of Religions. Would it be possible for us to kind of do a little, a short survey of some of the world's religions, and just could you tell us if there are millenarian components to these religions? Like, for example, does Shintoism have any millenarian component to it? Only that's crept in from other traditions. That's more like um, continual round of ritual and relationship to nature. 
uh, with the kami, with the spirit beings, littered through nature. So it's the um, more distinctly salvation religions, we call them, in which you have the sense of the future denouement, sort of resolution of things. Um, now, traditionally, you think of Zoroaster or Zarathustra as being the uh, first millenarian thinker in Iran, in Persia, uh, perhaps linking media and Persia. So um, there you have some sense that there's a conflict between um, the twins, the cosmic twins. Later they're called Ahura Mazda, uh, the great one of light, and Hariman, who's like a devil figure. And through time, they contest for the cosmos. And uh, they're equally balanced throughout time, but finally it's resolved in favor of uh, light as against darkness. Does Islam now, have? Does Islam have any of these millenarian components as well? Yes. Oh, Islam's components are very strongly Christian in their looking. I'll get to that. Uh, so what happens is in the course of time within the Jewish tradition, not originally, these um, millenarian insights also developed, probably partly through um, interchange with Persian and other cultures where these ideas were percolating. But you see, in a way, the whole of the Old Testament is a kind of story of slow grasping of all sorts of new things anyway. So by the time of um, uh, Jesus, you have very striking expectations about the coming of the Messiah, hopefully to get rid of the colonial bullies, in Jesus' time the Romans. And uh, so the, the feeling in Jesus' time was heavily millenarian like the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls were expecting a final war between the angels of light and darkness, sort of a bit like the Zoroastrian thing, and the righteous would join the angels of light and be given weapons from heaven. So it's all uh, interesting that when Jesus uh, was preaching, a lot of expectations about these things were around and got pinned on him. Hence, it's important to see how, uh, <clears throat> although claimed as Messiah here and now, um, in, indeed getting the title Son of God in the course of things, which we now know from the Dead Sea Scrolls was also a possibility in Jewish thinking, as well as other, uh, like Greek systems, um, he... Uh, was expected to come again after the resurrection. There's the waiting for uh, the second coming. And so integral to the gospel message is the return of the Christ and uh, the resolution of all things, the restoration of everything, so it will be not full of problems. This is the millenarian expectation I was talking about before, and it's integrally part of the Jewish and the Christian, and also the Islamic hope, because you know, 500 years after these ideas were in Arabia, and Muhammad is picking up on those, and so bibbidi bobbidi boo. This might be a surprise to some, but um, Muhammad's not expected to come back. Uh, Jesus is called Mashiach in the Quran, the Messiah. He's the one who'll come back. Uh, but um, he'll be preceded by uh, like a Jewish Messiah figure called Al-Mahdi, who'll clean up the world militarily and politically, starting it at first, by the way, in Europe. Uh, he's called the director, Al-Mahdi, also the last of the imams in the Shiite system. So all Muslims expect the return of Al-Mahdi, but then Jesus will come and judge, and also Moses, interesting, a Jewish figure. But guess what? In many Islamic systems, Mary, a kind of cosmic Mary will appear too. So um, <laughs> this is Islamic eschatology, 
millenarian ideas and um, the the four great monotheisms of Zoroastrianism, Judaism, Christianity and Islam share a millenarian hope. Now, obviously, the Jews are still waiting for Moshiach, right? Yes. So is that the strongest millenarianism in the world? Because it seems to be the one that's focused upon the most. You mean the Jewish one? The Moshiach, yeah. Well, you can't really say that except, uh, obviously, there are, um, you know, Jewish groups that will highlight the millenarian element, uh, like the Rebbe with Lubavitch. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, the Jesus scenario almost all over again. The Messiah uh, lives among us and then he dies, but he doesn't really die. So that's only one aspect, a sectarian aspect of um, Judaism. And I, I must tell you that although these big um, systems, religions, traditions, accept the millenarian hope, only certain minority components exaggerate them to the point of getting into a collective mode and saying, oh, he's coming, he's coming. Let's stop work. Now, in Melanesia, what they did is they stopped gardening. They stopped making gardens. They stopped uh, looking after pigs. You see? What do they they garden uh, in Melanesia? Uh, Taro, sweet potato. Bananas, you know, different fruits. And what, what do the gardens look like? Are they um, sections of the forest that are somehow uh, walled off? Yes. What, well, what do they wall they, them they, off with, they rocks? Clear, they clear area in, and uh, you slash and burn um, horticulture. So they clear the forest and put in a garden. Now, uh, for example, what about, uh, just take, for example, the Yoruba uh, in in West Africa, do you know if they have any kind of millenarian tendencies? Um, only insofar as they've been introduced by both Christianity and Islam, because uh, the Yoruba traditional religion was centered on the king and uh, the circulation of uh, the kings through um, competition in what we call a fragile kingship. Okay, so. No king is there by absolute right allowing hereditary rule unless his son happens to be particularly strong when he dies. So once a king dies, there's a contest between the lesser uh, princely or high chiefly types as to getting the kingly role, which is a very sacred role and uh, which is looked after by a very strong priesthood. So it's the kind of round of the social structure and the festivities going with it that, that's, that's keeping thoughts about the future going. Who will be the next king? You know, who will replace this one we've got who's pathetic or we don't like him because he doesn't belong to our tribe? It's not millenarian until you get some idea, oh, the whole thing is going to come to an end. Uh, what about uh, the Mesoamerican cultures or the, or the Incas? Well, you, get, you, you probably remember a document from the Maya um, called Popol Vuh. Right, yeah. You, you get ideas of one world replacing another in uh, lower North American, Mesoamerican uh, cultures like the Hopi, Maya, And um, this idea lends itself to apocalypticism or millenarianism, because we can talk about apocalypticism now, in the sense that uh, an order will come which will be the best order of all all, and will resolve things. And there are hints of that in the Popol Vuh that then become important when the missionaries come in. Because yeah. then it yeah. becomes kind of the second coming. Or And what about the uh, Incas? Do they have anything like that? Same sort of thing, I suppose, with the Yoruba. The Inca really is referring to the ruler. So 
Um, they're ex hoping for a, the, the best ruler out of the competitors because it's a fragile kingship of the sun, again, like the Yoruba. So uh, their expectations are really surrounding the rule. When the missionaries came in, particularly uh, the Franciscans, they brought talk about the idea of um, <clears throat> the um, ages of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is the age of Israel, the Father, the Son, the Church, and the Holy Spirit is when you go beyond religion and you get the perfect order where everybody practices for themselves and it's all in the heart. So um, when the <coughs> conquistadores took over um, the kingdom of the sun in, um, from Pizarro's day, the missionaries taught that message and the, the followers, the Quechuan who followed the, the Incas, were able to use that because the royal family was still given some standing under Spanish conquest. They used that model of the age of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to project the coming of the Inca return to the proper um, legitimate rule over the Quechuan people all over again because the Spanish should not have mucked things up. Only the missionaries came and at least gave them ideas about a grand future. So you see how there's a, a kind of linkage of yeah. um, indigenous and introduced ideas. What about moving on to um, Buddhism? Uh, obviously, Buddhists believe in nirvana, which is a sort of auto-apocalypse, if I could put it that way. So, yeah, right? Exactly. So, w are they a millenarianist movement or not? Or do they have that element within Buddhism? Only in the sense that over long stretches of time, um, Buddhas will appear. So, they will be the same Buddha who isn't really involved in salvation in the original Theravadan system, uh, only um, figures who could go into nirvana but stay in the world to help people um, are actually prayed to in the direct sense. These are called bodhisattvas, as you probably have heard this term, um, whereas the I mean, you strictly speaking, don't 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 deal with the Buddha himself because he's way outside the system, in this nirvanic state. However, in the course of great lengths of time, um, he will come again, because way way back in the past, he's had previous, um, uh, well, we'll say incarnations, but it's not the strict word. Um, presences in the cosmic order of things. So the Buddha of the future, and there's normally only one mentioned, is called the Maitreya. Okay, he's still the Buddha, but he's called Maitreya. Um, but putting a precise time on his coming is just not the normal thing in ordinary Buddhism. However, as I told you, there are groups that get on their tippy toes in expectation that the Maitreya will arrive. You're talking about uh, Benjamin Krem. Oh, yes. Well, the Theosophical Society and the hopes of Krishnamurti more than Krem. Okay. Do you know? Yes. Yeah. Krishnamurti, yes. Yeah. And Theosophical. So, so the Theosophists were also millenarians, millenarians then. In one precious moment of their time, <laughs> yeah, at the beginning of the 20th century, because after the death of their founder, their main founder, Madame Blavatsky, um, the successors groomed the young Krishnamurti to be Maitreya Buddha, the equivalent of Jesus coming again. And in fact, uh, I'm over here in Sydney, they expected him at least according to some reports, minority reports, to come walking on the water through the heads of Sydney 
and come up to the Balmoral Amphitheatre, which was specially built by the Theosophists to be welcomed uh, by Annie Bazant and Charles Ledbetter. Right, Led Ledbetter was Australian. Yes. Led, yeah. Right. Right. What about uh, what about Taoism? Does Taoism uh, have any kind of millenarian aspects to it? It does, but only in mysterious pockets, because as time went on, um, the idea of discovering the kind of final elixir of life, the final blessings of life, um, got translated politically into peasant movements, particularly under the later early modern um, <clears throat> uh, imperial regimes, when in the south uh, the stronghold of the north over the southern parts of France, uh, of, of China, <laughs> uh, became um, uh, too, 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 too stressful, too oppressive. So many of these um, uh, Taoist um, <clears throat> peasant resistance movements grew up expecting the time of uh, the discovery of immortality and the return of the uh, kind of jade um, final emperor to solve all problems. But um, the biggest millenarian movement which picked up on those resistance tendencies uh, was actually a Christian um, one called the Taiping Rebellion in the 1860s. Um, and uh, so <clears throat> there you have Hong uh, with a kind of Taoist background believing he had been told uh, by um, Jesus that he was the new son of God and millions turned in a resistance movement against the Manchu dynasty and uh, and, and millions were killed uh, for, for their trouble in that millenarian is, episode. Is Falun Gong related to that at all? It sounds kind of similar. No, no, not really because that's less millenarian but unless focused on the grand future than on the perfect meditative present. Okay. So it has less of a historical modeling. You see, the millenarian thing, when it brings in the future, it injects a kind of uh, beginning and end model of linear time. Um, this idea is probably the most influential idea of sort of separate secular ideas coming from from the Jewish experience uh, of uh, uh, passing through their historical experiences. So uh, you get the first histories in a linear sense developed within Judaism. Uh, but they fall into captivity, the, the Jews, and so their millenarian expectation tends to gather momentum alongside of their historical interests. Um, what about Hinduism? Does Hinduism contain any kind of millenarianist sects? Um, some maybe uh, like um, the return of the Golden Age, which is somewhat equivalent to the Greek model. So we're now dealing with a more distinctly Indo-European complex of cyclical thinking. So with the Indian system, the equivalent of the Golden Age is this perfect age called Krita Yuga. And uh, it's when all the gods and, and, uh, and people, they live in the same order of things. But through four Yugas, they descend to a bad situation which we are in called the Kali Yuga. So when the end of the Kali Yuga occurs, the best returns. The Kutta Yuga will come back again according to those schools which emphasize uh, that kind of thing. And just like, um, for example, Virgil at the time of Augustus was hoping that Augustus would bring the Golden Age which seemed to be long gone, 
and they were living in the age of iron and they needed to get out of that. So that's the only one that you've mentioned that has a cyclical sort of overarching ethos to it, right? Are there any other religions that believe in uh, cycles in that respect? Um, well, the, the Buddhist one, because it's sort of <clears throat> more slow undulating, it's cyclical as well, but very slow undulating. So the Maitreya will come at the top of a great undulation, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of years in the future, unless you want to take a different view. Uh, when you might be kind of a sectarian Buddhist somewhere, you know, in some oppressed context. Right, so, right. But the cyclical ideas come in with all the others in some way, but maybe the difference is that the cycles can come in as epicycles in linear time. You get the idea? So, right, yeah. yeah. Um, what happens in, say, the Book of Judges, you have the Israelites obeying God and everything goes well. Then they disobey and everything goes bad. Well, apocalyptically, what happens is at the end of time, everything gets extremely bad. It's got kind of the time of troubles. And so it's as if the divine has turned against you, but it's the kind of final big cycle of uh, problems. And they uh, it has to be resolved only by the direct intervention of God. And uh, this is the apocalypse. There's nobody else sorts the problem out. <laughs> is there any evidence that the uh, Celts had any kind of millenarianism in their religion or whatever it would be called before Christianity? Again, it's more the rounds, but there are signs that they knew about bigger cycles. Uh, so, uh, yeah, only in the sense that heroic figures resolved conflicts. And uh, so they created spaces which are um, kind of proleptic to the talk of the Christian millennium. So that's why um, when the monks settled in Ireland or began growing in Ireland, they they represented themselves as warriors with um, half long hair of the warrior and half monkish hair in the front, hair in the back and shaved in the front so that they marked the end of their continual round of warriorhood and fighting, although they were meant to anyway, and bring in this new order of peace, but like heroes, you know, they're like spiritual warriors. Uh, that was supposed to create, you know, the new order of things. It sounds comical, but it that actually seems to have a correlation with um, the mullet haircut that is sort of is so derided in America. Uh, that's common. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. That that's common among sort of what people would consider rednecks or hicks. You know. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Um, so okay. So what I'd like to. Uh, ask you about now is uh, this will be the last question for this section but um, what about conspiracy theory is that a modern millenarian move, movement and how has it managed to take over the world to the extent that it has well conspiracy theory hasn't taken over the world but of course um, it's uh, taken over the minds of many people um, if that's what you mean like the the whole of the Middle East, uh, the schools, they're all educated that America is behind 9-11 and uh, doesn't seem to be able to be wished away by saying that's absurd. And even in our uh, West, we're not sure. The point is that there's a component among conspiracy theorists that uh, uh, either um, there's a group, small group of people running the world to bring it to the brink and this will be necessarily solved only by God um, or there's the, what you might call, the power elite Illuminati type um, conspiratorial types who expect that they are the ones who've got the clue as to how the universal problems will be resolved. 
you know, the kind of group that was attacked by um, uh, um, Umberto Eco in Foucault's Pendulum. Can you tell us more about that? What What is that about? Well, you mean the second type of uh, group? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And Umber- Umberto's Pendulum, or Umberto well, Eco, you said. Uh, well, those who, who like esotericism or esotericism don't like uh, uh, Umberto Eco's attack on one particular group that has grandiose ideas about being in control of the cosmos by secret gnosis. But that's the point of that novel, whereas um, in ordinary esoteric circles, you you just have this idea that really uh, history doesn't go according to ordinary calculations. It has a mysterious unfolding behind it that only those with an esoteric knowledge uh, will understand. That could include, for example, the age of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is used in esoteric circles by Eliphas Levy, for example, who influenced Blavatsky. Um, But there are small groups, esoteric groups, that are millenarian movements who expect that because they have, um, you know, access to final scenarios in some way, uh, they will they will change the the whole order of things, whether noticeably or not. Usually, not so noticeably. Um, positively, the Theosophical Society with um, Krishnamurti. It was meant to be like that, but Krishnamurti just dropped everything and said, this is rubbish. Alistair Crowley's departure from the Golden Dawn Society was a kind of some negative uh, way f- um, to uh, you know, open up some kind of semi-millenarian chasm. And uh, some people, have, of course, as you know, have picked up on, on, on that as part of the conspiracy theory complex. Are you getting a feel? Yeah, but so can you kind of tell us what is Western esotericism? What is that? How does that fit in with everything else that you've told us? Um, well, there are basically three great trajectories of European thought. Uh, one is uh, like um, reason, the emphasis on reason. Uh, working things out with your mind. One is on faith, the reliance on the divine and revelation. And the other is uh, a reliance on um, gnosis or um, inner deep knowledge, sometimes kept very secret. Um, With conspiracy theory, those who hold their is close to their heart, they would they would keep it secret. But originally, this kind of gnosis was not meant to be secret. It was just meant to be wisdom, um, special wisdom. So, so what, the what's the great, difference? What's the difference between reason and gnosis? Uh, well, reason is more exoteric. You can bandy it around. Uh, gnosis is a very it's an esoteric inner thing, an inner knowing, and uh, it reaches beyond ordinary rationality. Is it is it the same as intuition or no? Involves intuition for sure, but intuition, like in Immanuel Kant, can be given a place also in the process of reasoning. What what would you yourself personally lean towards out of those three? Uh, all three. How do, you, how do you reconcile all three together? <laughs> well, I like to think, and I like to think I'm better at thinking uh, <laughs> than other people. So that's an arrogant side to me <laughs> that accompanies me because when I get into an argument, I like to think I've got the skills uh, in my argumentation. And I love thinking through things. Okay. So that's that, the that's the uh, reason aspect of it, right? Yes. But then every day as I work and I discover new things, 
I say, I have to tell you, it's actually impossible uh, for me uh, to do most of the things I'm doing without kind of realizing uh, the divine assistance. I have to admit it. I mean, I got, you should look at my room and my library. I got thousands of books around me and I'm trying to solve big problems about human ideas about human history. And I can pick up a book and not be sure what's in it, but very shortly I'll be able to get the kernel of the book by being able to turn to the right page, let's say. Otherwise, I'd be sitting for hours trying to work things out. Um, and that, and and, that uh, involves, so that covers the, the gnosis part, the intuition part. No, it kind of, it's really more reliance, living by faith. Otherwise, I'd go mad. <laughs> right, right. So uh, what, what about the gnosis? How is that involved in your thinking? The gnosis is a development of, um, over time, it's a kind of quiet wisdom where you see um, the divine is kind of reflected in your own tamed thinking. So you don't get lost in reason and excessive faith. Uh, you develop um, an inner depth about your very being. That makes sense? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> so that's wisdom then. Yes. And it's, it's introspective as well. Oh, very. That's, that's basic to it. And you're, you're knowing something that doesn't necessarily process through the mind. No, no, that's true. Okay. Well, actually, most things, you come to realize that most thinking is not processed through the mind anyway. It's very ad hoc. Um, it's full of jumps of faith, simply because we've inherited a language and we just think too quickly and unrigorously and too jumpily because um, of the inheritance of language and words. Uh, gnosis is when you see through that. Right. So it is very similar to wisdom. Yes. And, and so it, has to, it has to do with knowledge as well, but it's, not, it's not strictly enough. rational. No. Um, okay. And then my last question uh, for this part would be, uh, I know I said that before, but this will really be the last one. Uh, what is conspiracy theory? Is, I mean, no, no, you already addressed that. Is there a conspiracy? <laughs> no. Uh, no I, um, about what? Generally, like with globalism, with banks, with Zionism, all of that stuff that people accuse of being a conspiracy theory. Is, does, does any of that exist? Is there any truth to it? Well, I'm sure that you put it the other way around that there are people with incredible power who will have uh, very bad banking agendas, incredible power who are anti-Semitic, um, and uh, wish <laughs> uh, I sound a bit like Hannah Arendt here. We should hope that we'll, we we learn who these people are. I mean, you know that at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, 1911, I think it was, in a um, a rump meeting of the United States Senate with a, an extreme minority, it was decided that the Reserve Bank of the United States of America would be private and profiteering, completely unlike the Reserve Bank of Australia, completely unlike. And the, the Bank of England is, is like this too. It's private and profiteering. It's run by very powerful people, uh, the Senate representatives and so on. But the main um, maneuvers are, are, are um, powerful bankers. <laughs> we want to know what their agendas are, and, they, and it's very hard <laughs> to find out. So that's where conspiracy theory begins, with powerful people. What do they think? The front people, like governors of the Reserve Bank, they don't really tell us about what the whole group is operating according to. See what I mean? So I believe that uh, conspiracy thinking is useful to get you wary of who, hold, who, who calls the shots. So um, let's put it this way. 
there's an iron law of oligarchy in world power, to quote uh, Robert Michels, and also Vilfredo Pareto, these uh, great um, political theorists and sociologists earlier in the century who realized that you can't even have a monarchy without advisors. You can't have an aristocracy without a small group within the aristocracy dictating what happens. And you can't have a democracy or a parliament like a congress without a smaller group playing an executive role. It's just a fact of political life. And you and I, we want to know what makes these people tick. And conspiracy theories grow out of ignorance as to what is going on behind closed doors. Because they're, it's not provable somehow, because it's behind closed doors, it's not recorded, so therefore there's, it's not provable. Well, it could be somebody's going to get a tape recorder and find out, <laughs> like, oh, you know, Watergate tapes, find out what they're really thinking, and then the whole thing gets exposed. But, yeah, it's behind closed doors, and unless you tap it, exactly. So you, you kind of touch upon this. Is there any benefit to the conspiracy theory? I need to get you thinking like that, not not because of harebrained ideas, you know, about the protocol of Zion and all that sort of nonsense, because that's so dangerous anyway. Look look how it was used uh, uh, by the Nazis. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so it seems like there is a sort of um, wall like that that is impenetrable. <laughs> well, don't make an exaggeration. I'm just saying you have to be incredibly wary when you're um, in this world, I, I'm, I must confess, I'm in a state of permanent dissent. Uh, so I'm wary of all governments. Um, I'm wary of governments stealing the agenda too. Like, for example, at the Australia Day ceremony uh, here, because only a few days back, Malcolm Turnbull said, Look, um, we've come to Australia Day, and so what uh, what religion you are doesn't count. What what ethnic background you have doesn't count anymore. The most important thing that unifies everything is politics because of the grand idea of democracy. Well, really, that is one of the most insidious things I've heard for a long time by really? any Australian leader because democracy is just in our country, it's been the politics of hate for so long. Um, and it's just party politics and vitriol more and more these days. And it's so much more incredibly divisive than you what you find even with the working multiculturalism of the average Australian, though we've got problems, and the ecumenism and um, you know, cross-boundary religious activity with the religions. I mean, this is just... Bulldust is taking the agenda, but that's what I mean by keeping your, you got to keep your um, ears to the ground. I mean, if that was said, for example, in 1900, the crowd would have laughed. But because of, um, you know, we've got a lot of um, the presence of, of uh, um, <clears throat> Islamic groups here, for example, other religions and so on, he can play this card, which is facile. Thank you for listening to Hour One of Jesse War Radio. We hope that you have enjoyed this programme and found it informative. Stay tuned and check back each Friday for a new episode. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jessiewar and follow us on Twitter at jessiewar, all one word. Members can access Hour Two of all shows in the members' archive at jessiewar.com. If you haven't yet considered becoming a member of Jesse War Radio, please click on the subscribe link in the top navigation bar at jessiewar.com, where you can register for access to the members' archive, where both hours of all shows are available. Jesse War Radio is where we keep on peering further and further behind the veil of esoteric iconology and symbolism, with a new show every Friday. Farewell until next time.